0: Most Sundays we pray this collect, the Collect for Purity, at the beginning of the Eucharist, just as we did this morning. It's so familiar that it's easy to just slide right through it. I remember once, though, going to a play in which the Episcopal Liturgy featured, and there was a character who heard those words and suddenly sat up in her pew and said aloud in a horrified voice, All desires? I suppose most of us have some desires that we aren't sure we want known even in prayer. Maybe they're so tender that we barely dare to acknowledge them to ourselves. Maybe we're ashamed of the pettiness or failure to forgive. Maybe we have long since just shut down that level of hunger. The English liturgist Janet Morley published a book of prayers called All Desires Known. She writes that for her, this phrase evokes that distinctive stance which I associate with authentic worship, namely, an appalled sense of self-exposure combined with a curious but profound relief. She says she understands the life of faith to be in part about how we integrate our desires, the personal, the political, and our desire for God. And she believes they all stem from one source. I think she's right. And also that welcoming God honestly into our hearts, desires, and secrets, even though, of course, God knows them already, is a vital part of authentic prayer and indeed of becoming whole and human. I remembered this reading the portion of Psalm 139 that is in our liturgy for this morning. Here, too, there's a sense that God is in all things. The psalmist wonders at and praises a God who searches and knows, who is present within and all around, who presses behind and before who holds the psalmist fast in their mother's womb and also moves in the depths of the earth and the uttermost parts of the sea. There is nowhere to escape from this God. Verses that we omitted say, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make the grave my bed, you are there also. This God, the psalmist affirms, is present in the ordinary and the wondrous and also the most horrific experiences of our lives. God is not separate from us in our times of grief or suffering or abandonment. Notably, God is present in darkness when we have no idea which way to go, when we don't know whether the darkness is the darkness of death, or of rest, or of gestation. Darkness and light to you are both alike, affirms the psalmist. 139 is maybe my favorite psalm. I love its combination of intimacy and vastness, the movement between body and cosmos, and the image of God as both resting place and journeys companion of all our ways. Might meditating on these verses help to open us more fully to God's immense love for us in all our parts, and by extension, God's love for all? A colleague at Trinity Church, Summerlee Staton, speaks about the impact this awareness of God may have on our souls. She writes, Being deeply known by God is connected to radical freedom. When we internalize how God sees us exactly as we are and still loves us, we take steps toward a more lasting liberation. By resting in God's love and acceptance, we allow God to mold our character. We are transformed by God's knowing into people who are more just, kinder and more forgiving. Through God's graciousness, we extend grace to others, wishing and acting toward security and confidence for each person, each in their full worth and dignity before the eyes of God. Transformative awareness of God's love is one of the themes of the epiphany season. Last week, we heard the story of Jesus' baptism in which the heavens are torn open And Jesus hears God speak, You are my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This experience of being claimed in a relationship of love and delight is Jesus' call, a call he will continue to explore for the rest of his life. It is so for us as well. Baptism grounds our lives in the love of a God who will never let us go. And the promises we make in baptism speak to ways we intend, with God's help, to live out that love. It is a lifelong process of learning and discovery. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness for 40 intense days of wrestling with the meaning of his call. In this morning's gospel, he has returned from that experience to begin his active ministry. It always moves me that Jesus starts by inviting others to share the work and the life to which God is calling him, because the call can only be realized in community. John's gospel tells the story a bit differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, we'll hear Mark's version next week. But today, It may be helpful to go back a few verses to set the scene for our passage. The first disciples that John talks about are followers of John the Baptist. They've heard John speak about someone greater who will come. Jesus is walking by, and John says to them, Look, there is the Lamb of God. So the disciples follow Jesus. Jesus turns, and he asks them what they're looking for, and they, in turn, ask where he's staying. He says to them, come and see. So they go, and though we are never told what happens, their experience is life-changing. It's an epiphany. One of them is named Andrew, and he finds his brother, Simon, and says, we have found the chosen one. Then Andrew brings Simon to Jesus, and Jesus sees him, another epiphany theme. He sees him, and he tells him he's going to have a new name, Peter. This is where this morning's gospel picks up. Jesus decides to leave the area at the Jordan, where John is baptizing, and go to Galilee, where he's from. He finds Philip, a neighbor of Andrew and Peter, and invites him, Follow me. Philip, in turn, finds Nathanael. He tells him that they've found the one about whom the prophets wrote Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael is famously skeptical. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? he asks. Philip doesn't argue or try to convince him. Echoing Jesus' earlier words, he responds, Come, come and see. And something in that open invitation makes Nathaniel push out of his comfort zone and go through his assumptions and his cynicism to explore further. When Jesus sees Nathaniel coming, he says, Look, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit." We may not realize that this section is full of allusions to the story of Jacob. Jacob, the patriarch, whose very name means trickster or supplanter, but whose name will be changed to Israel after he wrestles all night with God. Nathanael responds to Jesus' words, feeling seen in some essential way, how do you know me? "I saw you under the fig tree," Jesus answers. "Again, we're not privy to exactly what happens for Nathaniel in this exchange, but something shifts powerfully, and he proclaims, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel." Jesus sounds a bit bemused when he replies, "You believe? because I told you I saw you under the fig tree." You will see greater things than these. You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the human one. This is another reference to the story of Jacob, this time to the dream he dreamed, alone in a desert place, of a ladder stretching to heaven. Here, too, earth and heaven touch, and an epiphany occurs Nathaniel could say with Jacob, "Truly God is in this place, and I did not know it." In these verses, the invitation "Come and see" resounds and it arouses curiosity and opens hearts. Those who come do see, and in that epiphany seeing, they are changed. They discover something, something about themselves about their hearts and desires and secrets, about Jesus and the community that's forming around him. There's a reciprocity in John's account. Folks search. They find and they are found. They see and are seen truly and deeply. They feel recognized and known in an essential way, maybe even loved in that seeing. Certainly, they step into a relationship of ongoing revelation and grace. Note all the variety in this short account. The call of each of these disciples is different. They take different levels of initiative. They respond to different invitations. They follow different processes, and they take different amounts of time to decide to follow Jesus on this enlivening adventure. It is so with us as well. We are claimed by God's love, and we promise to follow. But our particular calls and ways of living out our baptismal covenant are all unique. They encompass everything that we are—our gifts, our needs, our struggles, our past experiences, and our yearnings. Each of us is called by God's immense love— to love God in turn and our neighbor, and we continue to live into the call lifelong. It's so important to emphasize that call is not necessarily or usually about ordained ministry. It is sometimes about life work, it's true. It could be the work of an artist or a nurse or a teacher or a farmer. But equally, it could be about an immediate need that's ours to respond to in the moment. Or it could be reorienting our lives in general towards what's truly important, or perhaps a commitment to love. It's about how we can give our gifts to the world in each moment of our lives and how we can grow our own capacity for loving and being loved. In my experience, to discern call, we need solitude, deep listening, and also we need the communal experience of being seen and heard and invited to risk new roles, new work, new relationships. Today, of course, we honor the life and ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., So I'd like to close with a story he tells in a sermon entitled, God is Able, that speaks to the growth of vocation, grounded in the love and persistent, undergirding presence of God, as well as the depth of honest prayer. It was early in the Montgomery bus boycott, and Dr. King was young in his leadership, He didn't really know how the campaign would unfold, but he had begun to receive threats to himself and his family. Initially he thought this would blow over, but he was beginning to realize that they were really serious. One late night, the phone rang and a hostile voice said, ''We've had all we're going to take from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery.'' So Dr. King writes, I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. Finally, I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had almost gone, I determined to take my problem to God. My head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. He continues At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. And then, King concludes, three nights later, our home was bombed. Strangely, I accepted the news of the bombing calmly. My experience with God had given me a new strength and trust. I knew now that God is able to, help, to give us the interior resources to face the storms and problems of life. Friends, in these times of so much anxiety and violence and need, may we know in our bones that we are seen and held and claimed and called by a God whose love is able to keep us. And may that epiphany knowing make us ever more free to do the work that is ours to do, and also to invite others to come and see what God is doing in our midst. Amen.